Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning and give us humble hearts that bow before your word and that do not um, stand over your word and judge it or judge you, but stand under your word and make us humble, we pray, and strengthen us in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, I began by saying that there are two, two things that we have to understand as we come to really the whole book of First Timothy, all right, that are kind of behind everything. And these are the, those two things, these background issues. Just to remind us, number one, remember that this letter is all written in the context of bad teachers in the church of Ephesus. This is gonna come up over and over and over and over again. All right, everything is kind of cast against that backdrop, okay? And we're gonna see that this morning briefly uh, from last week's passage that I didn't cover. And then secondly, the Apostle Paul is insistent that the church must live in such a way that when outsiders or unbelievers, right, people outside the church looking in, when outsiders look at us, they have no excuse to dishonor God. That is stated over and over and over again as well. And not just in 1 Timothy, but also in the other pastoral epistles and other places as well. That's always in the back of his mind, all right? Should be in the, well, it's in the front of his mind. So those are the two things that are gonna be kind of shaping everything that he says, and we need to read it in that light, all right? Now this week, we're moving on to verses eight to 15 in chapter two, and both of these things are still informing everything that the Apostle Paul writes, but before we move on to verses eight to 15, uh, I want us to see something else in last week's passage, which was one to seven, chapter two, one to seven, that we didn't have time for last week, okay? Last week we focused on the second issue in what we looked at. The Apostle Paul is insistent that the church must live in such a way that when outsiders look at us, they have no excuse to dishonor God. That was kind of the thing I focused on last week because it was about living quiet and peaceful, peaceable lives and dignity and godliness, right? Praying for those in authority over us, all of that. But we didn't spend, spend much time on this first background issue this context of the bad teachers of the church in Ephesus. And so I want us to think about that for just a minute, and we're gonna move real quickly through this. He begins chapter two, verse one, with first of all, then. Right, I pointed that out to you last week. And the word then points us back to what comes before that and tells us that he still has that in mind. He's not just totally changing gears here. He's, he's building on what he already said. What he's about to say somehow flows out of all of that. And what he had just set up in chapter one is that there are false teachers in Ephesus, remember, who he says they are teaching strange doctrines, paying attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. And he goes, he even says more than that. He says these men have strayed from, they've wandered away from uh, faith, love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and they've turned aside to fruitless discussion. He says they want to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. So remember, that's all the stuff he says about them. So who were these false teachers? Here's what we know about them. 
We know that they, we, we are given at least two names, and when Ben Salser taught, that was the passage where he, we saw these two names, Alexander and Hymenaeus, right? And that was back in chapter 1, verse 20. We know from the book of Acts, chapter 19, where we see the kind of the founding of the church in Ephesus, in Acts 19, that Alexander, and I think it's the same Alexander, Alexander was a Jew. We know the kinds of things they're teaching. I just, I just read them to you. Strange doctrines, endless genealogies, myths, uh, the law, a kind of a perversion of, of a teaching of the law from the Old Testament. We know if we look ahead in 1 Timothy, if you look ahead to chapter 4, verse 3, uh, we find out that they, these men forbid marriage, right, and advocate abstaining from foods, so there's that element to their teaching as well. All right, forbid marriage, abstain from certain kinds of foods. And so <clears throat> I believe it's clear that these wolfish elders in Ephesus were heavily influenced by a particularly Jewish way of thinking. All right, um, it's, about, it's about the diet, it's about certain ceremonies, it's about the law, it's about genealogies. All right, you put all that together, you understand what's going on at this time in the church. There's a particularly Jewish way of thinking that's being reflected by all of that. And remember, the Jews were elitist and exclusivist. We know that from the whole New Testament. And uh, they are, the Apostle Paul is constantly fighting with those in the church who, who claim to be Christians that are of Jewish heritage who want to sideline and alienate and dismiss who? The Gentiles. That's the constant battle everywhere in the, in the background of the, of the New Testament. That's what these teachers in Ephesus are doing. All right? Now, that's going to be why I'm emphasizing that. Let's just read the first seven verses, and you'll see why I'm emphasizing that, all right? Look at it in this light. So he says, first of all then, <clears throat> I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of who? Not exclusivist and elitist anymore, right? But all men. For kings and for all who are in authority. So he gets narrow there because that's a placeholder, right? For those who actually hate us. So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires who? All men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We don't have time to get, dig into that deeply, but listen, this is not saying that he somehow has decreed the salvation of every individual on the face of the earth, but he can't pull it off. There's a, there's a difference in Scripture between what, we, what the Bible calls the, the, the decrees of God what God has determined will come to pass. He works all things in accordance with his will. And there's another word that is this word for willing or wishing or wanting that shows you the kind of this magnanimous heart of God. And it extends to his creation, okay? So he who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, not a Jewish God and a Gentile God, right? One God. And one mediator also between God and men, 
the man, Christ Jesus, of course, Jesus is God, but he's a man. He came down and took on flesh, like us, took on a nature just like us. There's one God, one mediator also between God and men, regardless of heritage, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of your right background, Jew, Gentile, whatever, one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, Jew and Gentile alike. The testimony given at the proper time, for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and then he swears an oath. Why does he need to swear an oath? I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, right? As a teacher of the Gentiles, all right, in faith and truth. So this is all of this, he's really, really pushing against something here. In all of this language, he's pushing against this Jewish elitist exclusivism. Does that make sense? God is the God not just of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. He's the God of all. There's only one God, and there's only one mediator. And he is the mediator between all men, regardless of heritage, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of background. There's only one mediator, is Jesus Christ. Yeah. Why is that in parentheses? (laughs) There are no parentheses in Greek. It's just this weird, it's a thought that gets inserted in there that when they translate it, they figure they gotta set it apart. It's kind of a parenthetical statement, yeah. It just hangs out there in a weird way, so they gotta do something with it, you know? Uh, Why did he need to make this affirmation? Because of the whole context of um, these Jews who are fighting against Gentiles being incorporated as equal members of the church. And so he does this kind of thing in a couple of places. It's just like an oath before God, you know? I'm not, I didn't make this up, I didn't appoint myself. I have been appointed. I was appointed, right, by God. So that's, that's the point. All right, we gotta go. Gotta leave that behind and move on to the next passage today because there's a lot of heavy and interesting and helpful stuff, I think. We've got to get through it. All right, you ready? All right, so this is where we are today, verses 8 to 15. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness." A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. That's an easy passage, isn't it? This is going to be great. This is, this is obviously a, the focus of all kinds of debate and, let me say it, twisting of Scripture. You, well, I'll, we'll get into this. There, what stands out at the beginning of this passage? All right. Um, I'm just going to tell you for time's sake. Two things. He's, he's addressing men and women 
separately. <clears throat> Males and females, men and women, separately. Giving them se- uh, sex-specific commands. Do you see that? He says, I want, the, I want the men and I want the women, men and women. And the other thing that stands out is he's talking about public worship, all right? But his instructions go well beyond public worship. Public worship is kind of the context that is allowing him to talk about these things, and yet the implications go well beyond public worship. They're not just limited. If you limit it to public worship, you end up this, this ends up being really silly. And we'll get into that in a minute. So <clears throat> let's just break this down bit by bit. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So here he's talking specifically to men, to males as opposed to females. And what he says here clearly implies that the males have the leadership in worship. Can you see that? This is a public um, gathering of the church, just like this one, just like we are right now, okay? And he's talking about what the men are to do in worship. They are to pray. How are they to pray? What's it say? Yeah, just like that. <laughs> there's, there's two things. There's, a, there's, a, there's something internal, and there, but there's something external. The external is lifting up hands, holy hands, and so our bodies must match our hearts without wrath and dissension. We can't pray together if we're dividing and fighting among ourselves. Again, think Jew-Gentile. That's the context there, but we could bring that right into here, and there could be all kinds of reasons for us to have wrath and dissension. You can't do that. You can't come together and worship God with wrath and dissension. You can't pray as brothers and sisters, right? You can't do that. And so he says, without wrath and dissension. Now that summarizes and applies what he was saying back in verses one to seven when he started talking about prayers First of all, then, I urge that prayers be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all those who are in authority and all that. Then he comes back and he says, now, okay, I want you to pray. This is clearly a corporate kind of thing, okay? Um, This is a public act, and we'll see that as we move on when he starts talking about women as well. All right, so that's the first thing. Men pray. That's the leadership in worship. It's public. It's visible. It's bodily, and it's uh, to be holy. No fighting and, 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 and divisions. All right, you with me? Now let's go on to the women. He continues these sex-specific instructions, but in verse nine he goes to the women. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created, then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, some of the things in this, in this passage are actually very, very clear. Most of them are very, very clear. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a couple that are kind of hard to figure out. 
but it's only really one thing, and it's verse 15. We'll get to that. Most of this is very clear, all right? Uh, when I said earlier this is the kind of the place where people focus and then start twisting, they have to twist because the clear meaning is clear. And in order to make the clear meaning not clear, you have to start doing things, right? And it's really doing things, twisting. He starts by telling women how to dress, how not to dress, and how to conduct themselves as godly women. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair, gold, or pearls. Think about this. He says that women must adorn themselves with what he calls proper clothing. Do you see that? This word proper means, um, this is not a word we use anymore, but it's a good word, seemly. Seemly, fitting, proper, appropriate. Um, you know, it, it matches something. It's, it's right. And he modifies that by adding two words, modestly and discreetly. So what is modesty? What do you think of when you hear the word modesty? We think primarily in our culture, not no skin, you know what I'm saying? We think covering the body appropriately. That's certainly part of it, absolutely. Um, having an, but it's, modesty is not just an outward, you can have, you can have a woman in a burqa who's not modest. You understand? Yeah. Yeah. So there's something else besides just skin. It's not putting yourself forward, not calling attention to yourself. It's an attitude, an inward sense of shame. You know what I'm saying? In other words, the opposite of shameless. When we think of shameless, we think brash, um, calling attention to yourself, not caring what's proper or improper or appropriate or inappropriate. An inward sense of reverence and honor that would keep you from shaming yourself. That's what, that's what that word means. Yep, Eric? Say that again, I'm sorry. Yeah. Right, she's immodest in the true sense, of the inward sense, calling attention to herself, brash, you know, and yet, boy, she's got, you know, she's got a head covering on. Now, discretion, that's the other word, modestly and discreetly. What is discretion? Well, we all know what that word means. It means good judgment. You know, please show discretion, you know, good judgment, Self-control, moderation, decency, you know, chastity, that's, that's kind of another old word that would fit here. So he says, look, women must adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Now that, is that cultural? <laughs> no, that is, that is completely timeless. You understand? That, those commands have nothing cultural about them in and of themselves. Uh, there's nothing cultural, nothing relative. Women in all times and in all places are to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly. And you know exactly what he's talking about. I mean, come on, this isn't difficult. We know what he's saying. This is perfectly plain. Now, 
in case you need some concrete examples. Then he goes into concrete examples. Now he's got, he lays down general kind of um, principles, proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Then he gets specific. And you could say that these negatives, these knots, are in a sense culturally specific. So what are the knots? Not with braided hair and gold, or pearls or costly garments. Okay. These, you could say, are, are more specific culturally, and yet the principle completely applies to us. These are, these are examples that the women then and there would have understood as the opposites of proper, modest, discreet clothing. These, are, these things are ostentatious, right? Showy, calling attention to yourself. This isn't necessarily immodest in the sense of skin, but it's absolutely immodest in the sense of showy and calling attention to yourself, right? And they are what? They, what, is, what do all these things have in common? Well, at least gold pearls and costly garments. Costliness, yeah, wealth. These things are expensive. Notice how he says, uh, let's see, where is it? Braided hair and gold. Then he says, or pearls, or costly garments. So and, or, or. So braided hair and gold go together. All right. So in other words, this is hair braided with gold, I think. Does that make sense? It's braided hair and gold. It's a, it's a single thing. Um, it's, not a, it's not braided hair per se. It's braided hair and gold or braided with gold. Pearls were actually more valuable than gold in those days. And the garments he's, he's warning about here are costly garments. So in other words, we shouldn't take this in, in a really kind of narrow legalistic sense. You know, no braids. Anybody got a braid? Who's got braids? Uh, uh Rachel. <laughs> I know what you're doing. You kind of have, now it's not a braid. No. Okay, that's not, that's, when we look at Rachel, we don't think, oh, she's showing off, isn't she? Now, if it was braided with gold, you understand? There's a difference, all right? Um, you know, we don't want to take this and say, oh, no wedding rings. Gold. No garments. Uh, that would be kind of counterproductive, wouldn't it? In the advance of modesty. Okay. We all know the kind of thing he's forbidding here. He's forbidding the kind of clothes and adornment that show off your status. The kind of clothes that make you stand out from everyone else and stand above everyone else. And you know part of what's going on here, think about the rest of the New Testament, right? Class distinctions in the church. You think, think Corinth, think the, the wealthy having their little clique and then the poor having less. You know what I'm saying? All that kind of stuff. And this, this, this appropriateness, it's not just about money, it's about modesty. It's the same kind of thing that, he, he, that the apostle Peter forbids in 1 Peter 3, speaking to women in particular, your adornment must not be external, that word merely isn't there, must not be external, braiding the hair, right? Wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. This is exactly the kind of thing that Paul, the Apostle Paul is saying in 1 Timothy. Um, exactly. 
So should we take this as a universal condemnation of putting on dresses? <laughs> you understand? Okay, what else are you gonna put on? I mean, this is not a universal condemnation, condemnation of getting dressed. Please, get dressed. Right? But, it, but it's an attitude, it's a, it's a spirit, it's a, it's a showiness, it's an immodesty. You know, that's what he's fighting against. How do we apply this uh, to today? Well, women, dress like a Christian. All right, dress like a Christian what? Hmm? Woman, dress like a Christian woman. He clearly has particular concrete examples in mind that everyone would have immediately understood in his day. We have particular concrete examples in mind that we all understand today. And for us, one of the primary things is modesty in the sense of skin. We all know, we all know this, come on. But there's also the modesty of, that's the opposite of the showiness. We know that too. This isn't rocket science, come on. But his words are much deeper than just a checklist of style or even of relative cost, you know. He's aiming for something deeper than purely outward legalistic conformity. Look what he goes on to say. This is back in 1 Timothy 2. I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, women making a claim to godliness. So how he wants you to, to, to dress modestly and discreetly, of course, you know, of course, he wants you to dress, ladies, modestly and discreetly. But he, more than that, he wants you to be modest and discreet. And there's a difference. As Eric pointed out, you can, we all know women who, who dress modestly and discreetly in an outward sense, but are not modest and discreet at all in the inward sense. Um, he wants you to be godly, he says not just in your appearance, but in your life. Now, the way you dress reflects something about your person. Those things should match. It's, it's not one or the other, you know, but it is both. And then he, he gets specific again. In verses 11 and 12. A woman must, and he's talking here about this what Peter calls a gentle and quiet spirit. Back in 1 Peter 3 that I read just a second ago. He goes there. He says, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Is that hard to understand? I mean, the meaning of the words on the screen, are these, is there something difficult about the grammar or the, the language of this passage that makes it hard to understand? 
I didn't say hard to accept, I said hard to understand. Yes, no, pretty plain, all right? Um, these are instructions that are very clear in their plain meaning, but we all construct all kinds of workarounds to make them not clear. Well, actually, you know, we can come up with all kinds of reasons why this doesn't actually say, doesn't actually mean what it clearly says. And that's twisting scripture. We may not do that. Yes. We'll get into that in just a sec. Yep. So these instructions uh, are very clear. We'll get into the context. Here, notice a few things here that he just, let's just think about the details. He says, a woman, whoops, wrong button. A woman must quietly receive instruction. Um, and a man, right? Not to teach or exercise authority over a man. That, that kind of language, he's just talking about generic categories. Does that make sense? Men, women in general, men in general. He's not talking about one particular woman or one particular man in the church in Ephesus. This is one of the ways that commentators have twisted this to mean something that doesn't make any sense. They, they twist it to say, well, actually, that there, was, there was a problem with one particular woman in Ephesus. I mean, I'm not joking. There was a problem with one particular woman, and this is, he's just kind of talking about that one woman in Ephesus who's being a problem, and he's telling her she may not teach or have exercise authority over a particular man. I mean, how does that work? You know what I'm saying? That's not, these are generics. These are collective. This is women, men. You with me? That's, that's how that language works. And secondly, he's, he's not only forbidding women from holding office in the church. Does he mention an office in this passage? He doesn't mention an office. He mentions a function of the office of elder or pastor, but he's, he's broader than just the office. He's talking about the activity. So clearly he's talking about the office. This rules out women being elders and pastors in the church. Obviously that's an implication of this. When he gets in the next, very next paragraph in chapter th three, when he starts talking about the qualifications for elders and pastors, what is... What's clear from that? Well, we'll see next week, but it's uh, the husband of one wife. Okay, we're, it's clear that he's thinking that this is men, not women. But he is saying that this prohibition is broader than just being an elder or pastor. What he actually forbids is, is an activity. I do not allow a woman to teach. That's an activity. Oh, you, you could be, you know, Ben Salser taught. Joe Helt is going to teach. We have people who teach. That's an activity. They don't have to hold an office to do that if they're doing it with our permission, right? But this is talking about women doing something, teaching. And um, he, he says, I do not allow it. 
Now third, the other thing to note here, he's continuing the idea from verses nine and 10 that women are to carry themselves in a manner, manner that's appropriate to their sex. Women are to be modest and discreet, right? He just said that. Not just in their clothing, but in all of your life, right? He says in verse 10 that they must adorn themselves by means of good works as is proper for a woman making a claim to godliness. What kind of good works are proper for a woman making a claim to godliness? These kinds of good works, right? A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. She must remain quiet. I do not allow her to teach or exercise authority over a man. I do not allow women to teach or exercise authority over men. Now, what would be the argument against this? Well, this is culturally specific. You know, one of the the extreme version of this is culturally specific is what I said a minute ago, where people say, oh, this is a particular woman. This isn't even about women in general, not even about women in general at Ephesus, not even about women in general anything. It's just a woman. No, 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 no. Okay, so that'd be the extreme way of making this culturally specific. Um, But what's the problem with that? In other words, meaning it has nothing to do with us. That's what I mean by culturally specific. That was back then. What's the problem? Well, the next verse is the problem. And the argument is the problem. Notice how verse uh, 13 starts, right? Four. That's a word that is an argument word. It's a logic, you know, he's... He's reasoning with us, and now he's giving us a reason. He just gave us something, a command, and now he's going to give us the reason, the ground, the basis for the command, right? Do you see that? What is the reason? For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but Eve, or but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. So he grounds the argument in a timeless, in timeless culture, culture-less truths. He goes all the way back to creation and the fall. The order of creation, Adam first, then Eve, the nature of the fall, it was Adam who was, it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Those are his reasons that are that ground that give the reason for his prohibition of women teaching and having authority over men. And those commands are not specific to Ephesus or to the first century, his commands are rooted in the order of creation and the way in which the fall actually played out. Now I want to apply this to us in our time quickly and then get to verse 15, okay? First, the men, brothers. What would that passage, verse seven, was it verse seven? Yeah, verse eight. What does that have to do with us? Lead in worship brothers, lead in worship. I don't mean learn to play an instrument and stand up front. I mean, go ahead, fine. That's not what I mean, though. I mean, lead the congregation with your zeal and your faith and your prayer and your what? What? No, body. Yeah, go ahead and lead with your voice, too. (laughs) He, he, He mentions body, okay? Come on. Don't be a hypocrite about it. Don't come in here on Sunday and put on a show. That would be like the woman putting on modest clothing but not being modest, right? Pray, lifting up holy hands. 
hands that are holy because you are, right? Without wrath and dissension. Brothers, lead in worship. Lead, lead us, lead the congregation. And second, the women, sisters, be modest and discreet and quiet. Be submissive, not just to your husbands, but to the leadership of the church. That's the context here. Don't be grasping and clamoring for a position or an office or a place that God has not made for you. Let your whole life be a reflection of the way God in his wisdom and goodness made the world and made you. Dress like a Christian woman. Carry yourself like a Christian woman. Don't be brash or flashy flashy or seductive. And this can't mean, when I keep saying this is in the context of worship, it is, but does this mean that men, you know, men should be unholy, filled with wrath and dissension as long as they're outside of the church building? Does this mean that women should be immodest, improper, and and indiscreet as long as they're outside the church? That's what I'm saying. It actually covers all of life, right? Okay. (laughs) Verse 15. This is, this last verse fits into that whole thing, and it's also one of the most disputed and, and, and argued about and talked about verses of the New Testament, so we're going to spend five minutes on it. But, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-constraint. Okay, what does that mean? Well, let's think about what it does not mean first. What it does not mean. There, there are various, you can read about this all day, okay? There are various interpretations um, other than what I'm going to say, they fall into basically three. First of all, people say, uh, well, this is talking about Eve and the birth of the Messiah. All right? Uh, women will be preserved for the bearing of the child. By bearing of children is a word, this means childbirth. Okay? So some people say this just means, uh, you know, the whole human race will be saved through, the, through, the, through that one childbirth way back when. Okay, there's all reasons why that doesn't work. Doesn't work. I don't think it works. Another um, possibility, some think this means that Christian women will, be, will come safely through childbirth, physically, even though God's curse, in God's curse on the fall, childbirth is painful and dangerous. So just saying, hey, don't women, worry women, it'll be easy. <laughs> And if you're godly, you won't die. Now, come on, that, that's not what this means, all right? Third, some people think, this is a verse uh, actually that's used by the Roman Catholic Church to, to promote the idea of merit, that you do certain things to earn salvation, okay? You earn salvation by suffering, no. The whole New Testament speaks against that idea. That's not what it means. So what is he saying? First of all, the word salvation, or saved, when women will be saved, does not equal being justified, okay? This is one of the problems that whenever we say saved, we we tend to think justified. So we are justified without works of the law, correct? Justified means being declared righteous by God, having Christ's righteousness applied to you and your account, so that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's justification, but the word saved is much bigger than that. Salvation is a word that's much bigger than that. It's a kind of word that can carry a lot of freight, right? And it really often means the whole scope of God's work in a Christian. The whole scope of God's work in a Christian includes justification, 
having Christ's righteousness applied to your account. It also includes regeneration, being born again, adoption, being made a, a son of God, sanctification, being conformed into the image of Christ, being more and more made holy in your life and your actual obedience to God as a godly man or godly woman and ultimately glorification, right? So salvation, or sanct- yeah, salvation often has all of that in view. Sometimes it's focused on parts of that, depending on the context, but often it's the whole picture. Here I believe he's saying that salvation is being, is being restored to what you were made for. All right, now think about this. Um, let's think about the men for a moment. What were, what were men, males, made for? Go back to the garden and what God put Adam in the garden to do, and then what happens after the fall and what God says to the man. Where does the fall, where does the curse hit the man? In work. The work of provision, right? Where does it hit the woman? The work of childbearing. You you with me? Okay. Remember what the Apostle Paul just said to the men. Your men were made to work and to lead. Men lift up holy hands. These tools that God gave men to subdue the earth lift up holy hands and lead the congregation in worship and prayer. Women, you were made to help, to bear and nurture children and to submit to the leadership and headship of men. That means your whole demeanor should reflect that. Modesty, discretion, a gentle and quiet spirit, submission to the male leaders of the church and to your husband. And it means to gladly embrace your God-ordained role as a daughter of Eve, the mother of all the living. Think about this. So when he says women will be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-constraint, he's not saying that you're in special merit points by having children, nor is he saying that if you aren't married, you can't have children or can't have children, then you can't go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that God made you women to be women. That's what the whole passage is about. And the work of Christ does not undo that. The work of Christ restores that. And so if you think that you can be more spiritual, more godly, more Christian by ignoring or trashing or despising your womanhood, you're completely dead wrong. If you think you can't be a real Christian unless you become a man, women, and take on yourself all the responsibilities and duties of men, like leading and teaching in the church, for example, then you're dead wrong. That's not what it means to be a Christian woman. To be a Christian woman does not mean to be a man, okay? It means to be a woman. And you women will be blessed by God as as you embrace your particular calling, your particular design as women. And the the best way to, to picture that is what? Bearing children. All right. Now listen, the same thing is true for men. The exact same thing is true for men. Think about how often the Apostle Paul is scandalized by Christian men who will not what? Work. It's what they were made for. Now look at this. In 1 Timothy, there is a corollary, corollary there's a There's a a parallel statement, not dealing with women in childbirth, but men in work. Look at this. 
No. First Timothy 5.8. If anyone, this is talking about men, does not provide for his own, his own what? Family. And especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Everyone gets all uptight about 1 Timothy 2.15, about women and childbearing and tying that to salvation. <laughs> Nobody gets uptight about this. But he's saying the exact same thing. If men, if you don't work, if you don't bear your calling as a man and provide, are you a Christian? Can you possibly be a Christian? What does he say? You've denied the faith. Is that man saved? No, he's worse than an unbeliever. This is exactly the same kind of thing that he says to women, but he says it to men in the context of their calling as men. He says the same thing to the, calling, to the women as their calling as women. Of course, there's all kinds of exceptions. Right, you know what I'm saying? That, that's not the point. The point is not, I'm a paraplegic. You're saying I can't be a Christian? Right? No, come on. I can't have children. You're saying I can't be a Christian? No, come on. Don't be, you know, uh, what'd you say, stupid? Yeah, I didn't say it. He said it. All right. So God made us, he made us men and he made us women. We must not try to escape that reality. Uh, being a Christian does not raise us above our bodies. It puts us in our bodies and makes us use them for exactly what we were created to do from the beginning. We, we must not divorce our faith and our salvation and our sanctification from our sex. Man, woman. This is what pagans do. Old pagans and new pagans both. This is what they do. Take everything away from the body. Up and it's all just about being spiritual. No, that's pagan. God made the body. All right. Now, lastly, whoop, this is why he ends the verse as he does. Women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. All right. This is not divorced from faith. This is your calling that's empowered by faith. We've really got to be done. If you have questions, we can get them next week, all right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how clear it is. Forgive us for wanting to argue with you and help us to understand not just the details and the facts, but what that looks like in our lives Help us to be humble before you and your word. Help us as men, help us as women. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.